0: Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. I uh, wanted to make sure that um, that the church... (laughs) front row told me don't come too close, so let me back up. I always move it up, and they got on me. They don't get you in our space, Watson, so let me back up. I'm trying to mind my space, but no guarantees. Uh, Church, I wanted you to know that even as we've gathered here and as we've prayed over the elders here, that there are others from coast to coast. I'm not sure that JR actually wishes he were here, even though he's in Honolulu, but we'll take him at his word, that literally from coast to coast that folks are praying for what God is doing here in our midst. And so I never want you to forget that. I never want you to think that what is happening here is just confined to here, but that others have taken notice about the ways that God is at work in us and among us and through us here in Washington, D.C., and are cheering us on. And that there is a larger cloud of witnesses that is excited about the ways that God is living and moving in us. So we wanted to send, let them send greetings to you. Um, there's a chant. I, th- I hope that you guys uh, know this. If I say to you, God is good. All the time. God is good. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. good. Come on now. I need, I need a little more over here. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Come on now. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Now listen here. Uh, this morning, this is what we're going to proclaim. We're going to proclaim that God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. Some days we need to hear this. On uh, days more than others, this week I need to be reminded that God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. On days where we're not sure if we meet it or not, we still say that God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. This week is one wherein we need to remind one another that God is good. All the time. And all the time. In the midst of the saber rattling of nations, in the midst of weeks where it seems like nuclear war is a tweet away, I need to be reminded that God is good. And all the time, in the aftermath of the largest neo Nazi white nationalist protest of my lifetime, we proclaim that God is good. And all the time, in the wake of the racial violence and the deep racial pains of our country that are laid bare yet again, we, though beleaguered, we defiantly say, God is good and all the time god is good. we're in but week two of our existence at christ city church and yet here on our second sunday and every sunday come heaven or hell we're going to gather together and remind ourselves that christ is still on the throne and that god is good all the time. and that all the time god is good. i need to be reminded of that because even as your pastor some weeks i forget And I need a community that I'm embedded in, that reminds me that God is good all the time. And that all the time God is good, even when I don't feel like it, or when I forget, or when I'm unsure, or when the evidence around me is to the contrary. And I know that I'm not alone this morning. Now we need to be reminded of the goodness and greatness of God all the time. even on hard weeks so God is good all and all the time God is good. amen thank you saints I needed that I don't think I'm the only one um, one of the things that we have sought to do um, this first month of our life as a church together is to remember the things to which we're called Our new name, Christ City Church, is a reminder to us that every time that we say it, that it's a reminder of the things to which we're called. Christ, that we are ever and always called to him, that in the weeks ahead, we'll look at what it means for us to be uh, called to this city, to remember that geography matters, that place matters, and that the Lord is the one that ordains the time and places and spaces in which people live. And so next week, we'll look at what it means for us to be called to the city. The week after that, two weeks from now, Pastor Justin will help us reflect on what it means for us um, to have a shared life as a community of faith, and what ought be the marks of a Christian community in Washington, D.C. This week, I want us to look at the first one, at Christ, just briefly. The language of our mission statement, I read it last week, that Christ City Church, that we as a church, that our life revolves around the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Christ is the object of our faith, that he is the one to whom all of our hopes and dreams and salvation hang. He is the one with whom we are captivated. He is the one to whom we look. He is the one that we follow, and he's the one that we invite others to follow. That Christ is central to our life at Christ City Church. The centrality of Christ is the thing that that, that we are to lift up. And the reason for this is because Christ is central to our faith. He is the cornerstone and the, the center of the 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 centrifuge around which we spin. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He would go on to say, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Our faith, our, our, our hopes, our belief hangs on Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, but the man, the God incarnate. And not just his life, but his death, his sacrificial death on the cross. And not just that he died, but also his resurrection. That that is the centerpiece of who we are to be as a community of faith. And not just the idea, but a real live bodily resurrection. Not just the idea of redemption, but real life redemption. Because if it's not for those things, then our faith, frankly, is empty. We're not just about just getting ourselves put together, but actually placing our faith in Christ Jesus. He is the primary source of the appeal of our faith, his incarnation, his life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And these are the things that are central to us. It's not just central to our faith, but also there's a centrality to Christ in the scriptures. You see, within the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, it all points towards Jesus. Christ is the lens by which we're able to unlock the story of the Bible, which is the story of God's redemptive purposes in the world. For us to fully understand what God is doing is to look through the lens of Christ Jesus himself. Following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus himself, at every point, he highlights this fact. When he comes out of the grave, he is walking on the road uh, to a city called Emmaus, and he's walking with two other disciples that are unnamed. In Luke 24, we see this encounter. Did not the Messiah, Jesus says to them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus opens the Scriptures. He didn't have the New Testament then. He's just opening the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And he's saying, see, here this is pointing to me. See, this passage is pointing to me. See, this psalm is talking about me, that all of the Scriptures are pointing to him. But Jesus doesn't just do this here. He's then later with the 12, with the, with the apostles, later on in chapter 24 of Luke. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to the disciples that are there so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer. Christ's death on the cross, and he'll rise from the dead, resurrection on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the name, in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Jesus himself is saying, listen, if you want to understand my, God's work in the world, then you need to see it through me, that Christ is central to our faith, and he's central to our scriptures. At every turn. You see, the Bible isn't simply rules or stories or ethics. It's a narrative of God's work of healing and restoring, all of which is done through Christ. Christ is central. That's why when we say our name, we're reminding ourselves of the centrality of who Jesus is in our lives and our shared life. But it's not just our faith, and it's not just the scriptures, but actually Jesus has centrality in all things. The passage that Dreyer read is an ancient poem. It's one of the earliest hymns that the church would sing. And in some of Paul's letters to the New Testament churches, he would include these different hymns. This is one of them. In this one, it says, For in him all things were created, in him, the hymn being Christ. All things were created things in heaven and things on earth, things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, through Jesus, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is central to all things because he is the creator. He is the creator uh, with God in the Trinity, in the triune, in the community God Jesus created. Christ, it, not only did he create it, not only did he create uh, the world and everything that's in it, but he's also the sustainer of it. He didn't just get it going and then send it off and say, good luck, I hope that you make it to the end. But he sustains all things. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Gravity holds together, the rotation of the planets holds together, the atmosphere holds together because Christ says it so. And not just things that are sort of grand and cosmic, but even things at a molecular and atomic level, molecules, protons, neurons. I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point. Those (laughs) things are held together, things at the cellular level, the mitochondria, the cytoplasm, the ribosome, the Golgi apparatus. Is that what it's called? There's a doctor in the house that Christ himself holds those things together. He didn't just create it and then send it off. But he is active and working in his creation even now. Why? Because Christ is central in all things. Christ holds it all together. The very large and the very small, he holds it together. But not just the things that are like outside of my body or that are in my body. But the other things that make for life, God holds those things together too. He holds together our relationships. He holds together our emotional selves. He holds together our thoughts and our artistry and our creativity because Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all of those things. And so because of the centrality of Christ and our faith and in our scriptures and in all things, for us as a church, if we're going to call ourselves something, then we're going to begin with Christ so that it can remind us of the things to which we're called ever and always. At the risk of being too pragmatic, let me just say it this way, that life works best when surrendered to Christ, when given over to the one who made life and sustains all of life. Life works best and has its richest meaning when given back over to the hands of the Creator. The problem is this, though. It's when Christ is removed from the place of centrality and replaced with something else or someone else or one's own self for that matter. When Christ is replaced as the central defining ordering relationship, the language of the Bible is that that's idolatry. The origins of idolatry of Christ's replacement is hell and the devil and it dates back to our earliest beginnings as people. We look at our Spiritual and physical forefathers and foremothers in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve. The enemy deceives our ancient ancestors. In chapter 3, verse 1, things go wrong pretty quickly. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Is, is, is the words of God, are they trustworthy? Is his ways trustworthy? Is he really good all the time? And even if he did say that, did he really mean it? Those can be two different things, right? And what we see is the eroding of the first man and the first woman's belief and trust in God and the centrality of the one who made all of life and who sustains all of life. And the enemy is looking to have them uh, dislodge God's place of primacy and replace God with a lesser idol. Verse 5, Genesis 3, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. When you eat from that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, known good and evil. You see, the thing is for us as Christians, when Christ is removed from the place of centrality in the life of a person or a people, that is always the work of the enemy. It is always sin, and it always leads to death. Let me repeat that. When Christ is removed from the place of centrality in a life of a person or the life of a people, that's always idolatry, that's always sin, it leads to death. Yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia Unite the Right rally that was led by white nationalists and the alt-right movement and the banners that were carried were banners that looked to race and white supremacy as a central defining trait over a life. Where whiteness is central where whiteness is Lord and Savior, where white nationalism is the rescuer and whiteness is the liberator. And that's a Foul, tragic, and terrifying and terrorizing idolatry that was on display. And it has its roots in the same lie that the enemy told our ancestors in the garden. Trust yourself, not God. Trust your race, not God. And when that has occurred, the beauty of Christ is cast aside for a bite of the apple of racial supremacy. And that leads to death. In this case, of oneself and others. And when that idolatry is baked into the narrative of a people and a country as it has been with ours, what develops is generations living in a racialized society and the in belief and behavior that some lives matter more than others. And when this idolatry is embraced, when Jesus no longer holds center court, what is cast off is the truth. And the truth is... God's truth, God's word that the Imago Dei is within each and every person. And Christ died and rose and is lifted up so that all men, all women, every race, every ethnicity, every tribe, every country of origin, every person, every life might look to Jesus, our shared creator and sustainer and liberator, and call him Lord. Sinister turn, though, on this thing is a religious one. When an idolatry has occurred, and Jesus is dethroned from the hearts and lives of a person or a people, and then it's covered with a thin veneer of Christianity and God language. What actually takes root is an impotent faith, impotent to save, unable to rescue, unable to heal that which is really broken. And this form of faith is simply put a wolf in sheep's clothing, looking to do what the enemy has always done, devour. But thanks be to God that even when wolves wear sheep's clothing, that the sheep have a good shepherd. Yes. So we look to him as, as a church as a people, to say, Christ be the center, Christ be the orienter, Christ be the liberator, unmask us, some of us in this room that have bought into that, unmask us where we have placed something other than Christ as the central defining ordering principle for us and ourselves so that we can see Christ at the center of our lives and our shared lives. Thanks be to God that we have a good shepherd. So when an idolatry takes root, there's a lot more to say about that. But let me take the foot off the gas a little bit for you. Some of y'all are like, whoa. <laughs> and you're right to do that. There's a lot more for us to say about that. But let me just say this. This is what happens when an idolatry takes root in, among a people. But what about when the idolatry takes root in the heart of a person, of a single person? i just tell my own story, when Christ is not the center, but when I am the center, because uh, I uh, like to do that, to put me as the boss of me. And truth of it is, I've shared this a little bit before, uh, my uh, chief idols are comfort. I like for things to be comfortable, uh, and one of the characteristics of someone who uh, keeps Uh, comfort as their chief idol is um, I like things to go the way that I want them to go. Um, Chiefly, I like my privacy, part of that is I'm an introvert, but I like my privacy, Uh, I like freedom, uh, I'm from Texas, so I don't like anybody to tell me anything I should do. Uh, and I don't, like <laughs> I don't like any stress at all, like zero. Like I don't want to be stressed. I want to be comfortable. I want to be f- private, and that's the thing. So I like things easy and manageable with no chaos, and I like for everything to be in its place. I'm actually a bit of a neat freak. The thing is, I have children, three of them, in <laughs> fact. And children, they are not easy and they uh, produce great amounts of love and chaos. At the same time, they take things and they will put them in different places that they don't belong. Simple things, frustrating things. They will brush their teeth, take the cap off the toothpaste, set the toothpaste and the cap next to it, and then walk away. (laughs) I'm like, you're millimeters away from doing the right thing. Why is this? I had to give Nathan some allergy medicine the other day. I go to reach in the medicine cabinet to get the little cup to fill it in, you know, five milliliters or whatever it is. And I go, and the cup's not there. I'm like, oh, where's the cup? Nathan overhears me. He goes, oh, it's in my room. <laughs> like, I, how, Why? We're not giving medicine in your room. Like, it I just, and it frustrates me, and it frustrates me far more than it actually should. <laughs> and the thing is, like, whether it's small things that we can laugh about this morning or whether it's bigger things, my, my response most often is with impatience, frustration, and anger. And there are days where I just, I, I, like, I, I, you know, I sort of flash. I'm like, all right, I am like ah, i can not believe you put it. Let me show you how to do it. And I'm like, getting the pliers. I never actually got the pliers, but I can imagine myself getting the pliers, putting it on the cap of the toothpaste, and be like, there. Good luck next time. <laughs> Five-year-old daughter's like, what? <laughs> and, and it leaves me kind of sort of with this residual wondering of if I'm discipling my children in the way of impatience. They say when, when things don't go your way, then it's okay to just be mad. When people don't go your way, it's okay to be frustrated. When expectations or hopes or plans don't go your way, it's fine to huff and puff. And that I'm discipling my children in that way. Because my idol is comfort. That I want that to hold center court. Let me tell you how bad your pastor is. Let me tell you just how messed up I am. So this afternoon... I'm going on vacation. Love you guys, but I'm heading out. For a week, we're going to be uh, on the beach in South Carolina, with some of Lisa's uh, sisters and their families. and I love them I love her sisters. they're a ton of fun. Uh, and there's going to be 13 of us in this house. by the time it's all said and done. Thanks be to God. Um, <laughs> seven children plus a dog. And my my idolatry of comfort, my desire for things to go just my way is beginning to kick in. And I'm like, oh, man, that's a lot of people. Like, how am I going to get my own time? How am I going to get me time? Like, uh, there's going to be kids there. Most of them aren't mine. How am I going to make them behave? So I'm like, my stress is sort of getting bigger. Uh, The people, they've got their own plans. So like, they want to do stuff. And that means I'm going to have to do stuff with them. So it's really rubbing against my freedom and want to do what I want to do. And so I'm stressing out about this. And I've been praying. I've actually been praying. We were talking about this in staff meeting. I've actually been praying Philippians 2 for myself that I would actually have the mind of Christ. What's crazy about this is I am going to be at a beach house on the beach with a pool, and I'm stressed out about a week <laughs> in a beach house with a pool looking out at the, at the ocean. Why? Because of my idolatry. Because I'm not allowing Christ to be the center of me. I'm wanting to put me as the center of me. What would it look like if I displayed in it all the humility and centrality of Christ in the everyday? If I lived under his rule and reign and the ease of his life in me, not the heavy weight of my life lived my way to surrender my desire to the rule and reign and to submit to the one who made me and sustains me wherever I am in whatever kind of week I've had. That's what it means. That's why I need a community that reminds me of the centrality of Christ in my faith, in my scriptures, and in all things, even my vacations. Christ City Church, though we are a people and a people given to idolatry, we will be a community that ever strives individually and corporately to keep Christ central. And good news is that Jesus doesn't leave us in our hate-filled brokenness. He offers us a way home and a way towards healing. He offers salvation. This is where the poem goes in Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus knew the state that we'd be in, and he made a way for us in Christ, reconciling us to himself, offering us peace with him, not under our own devices or under our own strength, so that we could rest in him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we we do look to you. We look to your goodness, your greatness. We look to have you be the center of our lives individually, as a church. God, in the the places and, and the locations where... Where some other idol reigns, God, we pray that by the power and strength of your spirit that you'd bring conviction. It is not unloving that you bring conviction, God. And so, God, in whatever ways that we, that those of us here, even right now, God, that we have been living our own ways or that we have dislodged you from uh, being central in our lives, God, I pray, spirit, that you would bring about conviction, And repentance that leads to godliness. God, I pray that you would would stir in us a right sorrow over individual or corporate sins of, of white supremacy. That you would bring us to a place of repentance. That you would bring me to a place of repentance, of godly sorrow, so that I can be more fully alive in you God, if there's been other ways where we've sought to do life on our own or by ourselves, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd bring about conviction, right conviction in your love and in your generous mercy, God, that you would point us towards life that is truly life, that is anchored in the creator and sustainer of all of life. Spirit, move in us. Let today be the day of salvation, of revival and renewal in whatever areas of our lives, let us be surrendered to you. Let us return to the one who loves us greatly and deeply. In Christ's name, amen.